Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome, welcome. This is Ask Map. So some of you have been coming to Ask Map every week or many weeks for a long time. Some of you, this may be new. Once a week, typically Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern here on the same YouTube channel many of you are watching now, we do a live advising session. Map keeps growing, so we're up to five advisors now. So it's not always all five of us, but it's usually at least three of us. And this week, you've got me, Rachel Grubbs. Uh, there's a banner for me. Thank you. Um, I have been in test prep and pre-med advising for a little over 20 years now. I'm old. Um, <laughs> and uh, just, you know, acquired a lot of information along the way. With me is Verinia Granham. Verinia is the uh, former assistant dean of pre-health and STEM advising at Hofstra University. And uh, how are you today, Verinia? I'm doing great. I kind of feel left out. I didn't get the memo on the red. I should have oh. checked in. Yeah, Courtney and I called each other this morning. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I bring this a is actually bound. orange. It just shows up oh. on camera red. <laughs> How are you, my friend? <laughs> I'm great. Okay. And Courtney, last but not least. How's your audio now, friend? I think doing well. I put in my headphones. Yeah. Hopefully there's no feedback or anything. You know, yep. the joys of technology. It happens. So Courtney is our uh, newest mapped advisor, but not at all new to admissions. She comes to us from Rural College of Osteopathic Medicine, former director of admissions there. So we've got folks on this team who've been doing test prep and private advising, who've been doing undergraduate education advising, who've been doing um, the actual admissions of med schools. Nice, well-rounded balance today. And as we head into this session, if you've been listening or watching today's speakers, we know you have lots of questions. We see them come pouring through the comments. We're answering as many as, I can, as we can, but a lot of the questions you guys have had haven't been immediately relevant to the question at hand or the topic at hand. So that's what this next little session is about. It's a free-for-all. Any pre-med, any pre-health, any pre-PA topic, we may not get to them all, but we'll get to as many as we can. So start typing in those questions. It's time to ask Mapped live Q&A with any topic. Woohoo. Woohoo. It's been a really good conference today, too. It has. Really helpful. All right. Who's Great. doing our comments? We have a question. I can grab one. Sure. Uh, let's see. 
Yeah, I think this got asked from the last session, but we can answer it here. Suzanne asked, is there a list of medical schools that require CASPER and or preview? Yeah, the easiest way, Suzanne, to get them is to go to the CASPER and preview websites. You should be able to find that data um, on each individual school website. And typically, they talk about it as part of the secondary application. So when you get your secondaries and are given the data about doing your secondary prompts, they'll typically mention CASPER preview there as well. But the test sites themselves are um, are the easy place to look and see every single school in one place. Awesome. Right. Okay, Morgan asks, is it okay to take classes that are not prereqs at community college? Brinia, why don't you take this one? Sure. Uh, so Morgan, yes. So not prereqs, meaning not your pre-medical or pre-PA requirements, um, are, it's okay to take them at a community college. I think there's a perception, um, and unfortunately for some medical schools, the, re the reality where community college courses are, are sort of, I don't want to say looked down upon, they're considered not as rigorous, um, but not prereqs, uh, I don't think would really fall under that category. I think it's fine particularly if you know, you're starting out and you wanna just kind of complete some of those general education courses before moving into your more advanced courses and you wanna take those at a community college. Maybe you started out at a community college and then you're transferring to a four-year school. Um, that's okay to do, absolutely. Okay, great. Any perspective on that, uh, Courtney, that you wanna chime in with? No, I agree with what Verenia said. It's Prereqs you definitely want to take at a at a four year institution if at all possible, um, and other schools as long as you're not racking up I would say you know mm -hmm. just a plethora of different universities. But we do understand that you know due to location or finances or just timing that some classes may need to be taken at a community college and that would be okay. But whenever possible for prereqs, four year. Yeah. Okay, great. Let's see. Maria asks, could you please give more tips for international applicants with a U.S. bachelor's? Okay. I can start with this one. So, Maria, it can definitely be challenging um, to, be, um, to be an international applicant because the first thing to know is that not all U.S. med schools will accept international applicants. So you need to do your research. We talked um, much earlier in the day about the fact that there are aggregate places where you can see information about all the schools. So you can go to Choose DO Explorer for the uh, osteopathic schools. You can go to the MSAR, the medical school admissions requirement for uh, allopathic schools. And then you can go to the uh, Texas Health Education website for, for Texan schools. And you just have to check their policies um, because if they're not equipped to handle someone who is an international student, if that's not part of their policy, then there's, there's just no point in applying. Um, I think the next big thing to keep in mind is that financially it can be a little bit more challenging because so many med school loans are federally funded here in the United States and you may or may not be eligible. It's great that you have a U.S. bachelor's because that's also something the med schools here in the States are sticklers about. So you've already surmounted that challenge but now you'll kind of have to think about, are you funding this yourself? Are you funding it privately? Are you taking private loans, which often have higher interest rates than the federal public loans? So just some factors there. And then the final thing I'll add is 
We are definitely pre-med experts here, but part of being an expert is admitting when you need to collaborate with peers. And there is a group that we like that actually were, was on MAPCON National Pre-Med Day last year called F1 Mentors. Now, they aren't really admissions experts, but they are residents and physicians and med students who are international. So you're still going to want to come to a resource like ours to get a lot of the admissions info. But if you're just kind of wanting more guidance about the lived experience of being an international student, F1 Mentors, you can Google them. They're fabulous. They do free mentoring for international applicants. So I would definitely check them out. Yeah, and I would add to that too, Maria, sorry, really quickly, just that you want to, just as we would tell a student from the U.S. that that your story matters. So be sure to share that in your application, talk about your path to medicine and what made you interested in medicine and what got you, what continues to motivate you to continue on this path. That's very important too. Yep. All right. Jimena, I love your name, Jimena. That's one of my favorite names. Uh, Jimena says, being from rural Montana, shadowing has become very difficult. What sorts of things can we do to supplement limited shadowing? We might have a banner for this, but there are lots and lots of virtual shadowing option options out there. And one of them is offered by Mapton Medical School Headquarters. It's at eshadowing.com. No hyphens or anything. So just the letter eshadowing.com. Um, what we have seen, and we talked to several admissions advisors about this over the last few years, um, is that while everyone agrees that virtual shadowing is not as good as in-person shadowing, in-person uh, virtual shadowing is better than nothing, right? So you're in a rural area, it's challenging. I encourage you to keep cold calling, keep looking for opportunities. Think think broadly, right? Don't just think hospitals, think hospices, nursing homes, private practices, um, you know, there's just lots and lots of places that you can be looking to shadow physicians. Um, but you can also go to eshadowing.com and sign up for some virtual shadowing, which is generally accepted as a supplement to in-person shadowing. Yep, yep, yep. Samantha asks, what would say, what would you say admissions look for? What makes a student stand out as an out-of-state resident besides having ties to the school or state? Uh, so Courtney, you wanna just start off on this one? Sure, I would say thinking about kind of the purpose of the school, if they have a really strong mission or um, a specific population or um, kind of location with certain residents, Having familiarity or past experience where you have interacted with people of similar populations, uh, you know, I know that at my previous institution, we took usually about 90% of our students from out of state, and a lot of them were looking for experiences or to kind of grow their experience with working with underrepresented and underserved and in a border region, and so that was really helpful. So if you don't have specific ties to the school, I would say, yeah, look at their mission, look at the way that their curriculum is set up and the resources that they have available and see if you can kind of tie yourself to how they present the curriculum and your learning style and how you feel like you would benefit from that. And clubs and organizations, if you can tie yourself to those things that you want to be part of, I think that that's really helpful. Plus it shows that you've done your research and you can, you know, 
let them know what kinds of things you want to be involved in that they already have going and, and things like that. So there's a number of different ways to do that. Yep. And then uh, specifically with the out of state, you may know the Samantha, but just for anyone listening, uh, the thing with out of state typically plays a bigger role with public schools. So you can always reach research schools and see what their um, historical out of state percentages have been. Or, you know, maybe it won't show you every year, but it'll show you a recent year or recent average. And that gives you an indication. Many public med schools are funded by the state and therefore expected to take a certain percentage of in-state candidates or matriculants, I should say, but it does vary. So for example, I live here in Columbus, Ohio. Ohio State is a great public med school. It's got a pretty high out-of-state percentage, as do our neighbors up north in Michigan, another Um, it's blasphemy to say I like Michigan, but it's a fabulous med school. um, And they also have a high out of state. Um, So some of it is just sort of knowing those data points. And sometimes if we're simplifying, we just say, beware of public out of state schools, but we don't mean don't apply. We mean know the odds. And then exactly to Courtney's point, have a reason, understand Mm -hmm. the mission. Um, Because often those private schools are going to have higher out of state acceptances. Yeah. Esme, volunteering at a hospital considered sufficient for clinical experience. I help check in patients for surgery, escort to pre-op, help turn over rooms. So my time spent with a patient is limited. Verenia, you're nodding because you know I'm going to call on you. (laughs) Let's tell our friends about clinical versus not clinical. Absolutely. Uh, Esme, so volunteering at a hospital, um, the location itself doesn't determine the clinical experience, just that by itself. It's, and this is what's key in your statement, how much time you're able to spend with patients. And you've already indicated that your time spent with the patient is very limited. So you're not engaged in in some way or form in that, in the care of that person. So you are checking in patients, you are escorting them, um, you're helping to turn over rooms. So you're getting very valuable experience around the healthcare setting, but patient care experience, actually taking care of the patient, taking care of their needs in some way um, is really what defines your experience. So clinical experience equals direct patient care. Uh, The setting itself, uh, it's not, it doesn't matter. It's more so what you're doing with the patient. Probably. Yeah. And they probably doubled it. So there you have it, folks. Excellent. So that would be 400 X last year's revenue, but you would look at the run rate. So what happened last month? Megan says, if my school offers a letter of recommendation packet, but I don't pursue it. Will that look bad to an admissions team? What if I have strong independent letters of rec? Courtney Lewis, what are your thoughts on this? I would say sometimes that's a bit subjective, um, you know, depending on the rest of your application and things like that. But I think if you want to put together an independent letters of recommendation packet, that won't be frowned upon. Um, we definitely know which schools have, you know, certain requirements for their committee packets that they put together. And so we may be aware of that and have some questions to that. But I don't think it's going to rule you out completely because there's any number of reasons why somebody couldn't get a committee letter 
sometimes it's timing, sometimes it's being out of school for a certain amount of time or not having your MCAT score in time to be able to interview with the committee. So we're, we're a bit flexible on that. And we do understand there are nuances that go into that. Yep. Uh, I, I have seen cases, you mentioned here, Megan, not pursuing it. I've definitely seen cases where um, schools that do packets or committee letters have standards that you have to meet in order to get the packet. Um, I'm not a fan of that. Um, I'd love to have some debates with some advisors from schools who are doing it to get a better handle on their perspective and also maybe with some admissions officers. I think it simplifies things for the admissions committee, but personally, I get nervous about the idea that anyone can tell you no before you get to the med school saying yes or no. Um, but yeah, that, so sometimes it's by choice and sometimes, you know, they said you have to have already been here for a certain number of credits and have a certain GPA and maybe you were a transfer student and you just didn't hit the thing. So yeah, it's it, ultimately it's your choice. Yeah. Iris says, do prereqs expire past a certain time? I was told by an admissions committee member they do, but on MSAR they don't. Help. <laughs> Yeah, tricky question. This is a common, common, uh, I would say myth, but we can get into a little bit of why it's a myth. Vernia, you want to chime yeah. in here? Sure. Yeah, I think it's one of those it depends questions, right? So it depends on how old the classes may be because medical schools may want to see more recent academic work just to show that you have um retain some of that content and are able to still kind of show academic progress. Do they expire? Um, I think it will depend on each school. I have seen some some schools indicate that they prefer to have courses taken within a certain time frame, um, but I can't say for sure if they're absolutely going to tell you, no, these are too old, you have to retake them. So really it, it, it depends on that particular medical school. And I know it's tough. It's frustrating that you were told two different things by the commission uh, admit, uh, admission committee member and the MSAR. Um, go based on the MSAR. Um, but again, if it's been a significant amount of time, you kind of need to show more uh, recent coursework, then that may be what you need to do. It may also matter too if you have to take the MCAT, for instance, and if you need to re retake some classes to brush up on the content for that, um, mm -hmm. that might be a factor as well. Yeah. Um what I was thinking about is, although there are maybe some schools, as you said, out there that have prereqs expire, it's more often that they want to see recent coursework. Mm -hmm. And Courtney, you want to speak a little bit to that as you've been very recently picking future physicians. Why does recent coursework matter? Yeah, it's we're, we're putting you into 32 plus hours of heavy science coursework and asking you to balance your own mental, physical, spiritual well-being, research, volunteering being a participant in clubs and organizations. So anything that would kind of give us a bit of a preview on how you are as a student right now is helpful. So knowing that you can handle upper division and or recent coursework is, is helpful for us in that way. So that's why we like to see recent. It's one of the major reasons I would say. Can you handle the rigor? Are your study skills current? Mm -hmm. All right, what else we got? Allison says, would you say during application, they understand that some students had unforeseen circumstances handled during undergrad, like health issues that led to a lower GPA? Uh, 
I'm going to start with our classic, It Depends. And I also think this is a great opportunity to show MapDAP. So, uh, Verenia, why don't you start talking about GPA trends a little bit and sure. uh, dips and grades, and I'll see if I can get mapped up on the screen. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, what what matters, um, of course, having a strong GPA and all of that is important, but what matters even more is what's the story behind that GPA? What were those trends? Were you Did you start off really, really strongly in your first years of college and then sort of dipped and then continued that that downward trend? Or did you start out a little lower and then sort of built your way up and really, really knocked it out of the ballpark by the time you got to your application year? Um, that tells a story. You know, what was going on during that time? Um, and that is something that you can potentially give context to in your application, whether it's through your personal statement or maybe through a secondary application. But But the trends are the important thing. Did you, as I said, continue? Did you start off um, really strong and dipped? What does that show to medical schools? Did the course, did the courses get harder, um, and you sort of struggled and couldn't really keep up with them, or the opposite? Maybe you had a rough start and made your way up, and that's something that um, Mapped app can help um, help you visualize. Uh, Rachel, if you want to kind of go over sure. how this works. Yeah, so I definitely encourage everybody who is watching to create a mapped out account. Um, we've been told our website is not as clear as it could be. So we're taking that feedback and trying to make it better. Mapped app is free forever. Uh, there's no like secret gotcha moment where we suddenly require a credit card if you're only using mapped app. Now there is a mapped app pro, which is a paid level of it. But right now, about 90% of our features are in mapped app in the free level. We are gonna be building more things over time and some of those things will take some extra funds and will have to be in the paid level, but there is a holy host of great stuff available for free. And the thing that we hear from you guys, you, you people who are using mapped app over and over is the thing you love is the GPA calculator. And I have to believe a lot of that is about the graphs because you can always Google a spreadsheet and calculate your GPA through a spreadsheet online. There are tons of those. But if you're looking to see some of the ways med schools will analyze your GPA, then the mapped app is the way to do that. So if you're looking here at this chart that I'm showing you, the student has entered all of their grades and they've got for AMCAS a cumulative 3.19. Now we calculate for all three services. So just to show you, could switch over to a Comus. It's actually also a 3.19. Sometimes it's the same, sometimes it's different. And Texas is a little different. It's 3.23. Um, Texas, I mean, they, all the applications have tiny little ways that they measure, but Texas doesn't do minuses or pluses. So this person might have had a couple A minuses or something, and that's why they got just a tick higher for Texas. But the key thing you're looking at here is this green line. You can see it goes up down, big dip happened in 2018, back up, that's great, but then started to dip again. A common question is, I have a 3.2 GPA, am I going to be able to get into med school? And the answer is, it depends. Now, if you were this student, this demo account that I've created, if this were a real life person, what I would be telling them is, hey, I still think you have a chance, but your grades have been dipping back down over the last few terms, and we need to stop that habit and fix it, right? So, if it was just a dip down and then everything went back up and stayed up, that would look to me like, um, like our question asker said, unforeseen circumstances, you know, grandma passed away or mom needed help or 
I got pneumonia, you know, something happened and then you got better and you, you righted yourself. But if you're going up and down all the time, or if you're trending down now, and I don't mean I went from a 3.9 to a 3.85, that's not a trend down. So that's just mm-hmm. a great GPA. But if you were at a 3.5 and you trended down to a 3.2, well, now I'm starting to worry for you a little. So, and it goes back to what Courtney was just saying about the rigor of med school. So I encourage everybody to create a mapped up account, put all of your courses in there, and it will show you not just your GPA, the way med schools will show it, but also what your trends look like. And then there's some more detailed charts on the second GPA page. The one I really love is a class standing signs GPA, because sometimes people will try to boost their grades with things like a master's in public health or a fun minor. And, you know, take those things if they interest you. But if you want to prove to med schools, you can handle the rigor of med school. You want to be taking rigorous upper level science courses. So that's a little about MapDAP. I'll bring our faces back. Salama. Do PA schools count the GPA calculated by CASPA or the GPA that is on your transcript? I have taken eight of 10 prerequisite classes at my four-year uni and the remaining two classes at a community college. Excellent question. And I really loved you asked that, that you asked this, Salama, because I was just showing a pre-med example, but we do have pre-PA mapped. And we'll calculate the CASPA GPA for you. Now, with PA, it's a little tricky because CASPA is the common app, but it isn't the exclusive app. So there are some PA schools that don't go through CASPA. So you should always check their policies. But generally speaking, almost every PA school in America is going to look at every college-level course you've ever taken, um, whether at a four-year or a community. Jacob says, can you write a story for shadowing on the AMCAS application, expressing what you value in a physician in addition to listing your hours? Ooh, what do you think about that, Verenia? That's a great question. Um, You're limited in the amount of space that you have, right? In an AMCAS application, you have 700 characters. So you have, you know, you want to be able to um, use your activity spaces wisely. Um, And yes, we recommend that you list shadowing experiences. And depending on how many you have, you could potentially write a very short summary or blurb to talk about what you learned, what you observed, how it impacted you. Um, It's not necessary because they sort of know what shadowing is, you're observing, you're learning. Um, But I've always encouraged students, you know, to if you have the space and you really were impacted by something that you saw while shadowing to go ahead and write a, a short summary about it or a short blurb. Courtney, anything you wanna add there? Want to get in a fight and debate her? <laughs> nope. Nope. And it's it's similar for ACOMIS whenever mm-hmm. you're entering things there. Except with ACOMIS, you can write about more experiences, but the length is going to be similar. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the one thing I'll push back on, and Jacob, I'm just taking you very literally here. As you said, expressing what you value in a physician I'm not reading activities essays to learn about what you think of other people. I want to learn about you. So if you're kind of saying, you know, this inspired me and I want to emulate this person, that's great. But uh, the personal statement is why medicine and the activities are all about applicant, right? So I just want to make sure it comes back to you. And so it doesn't, you know, not all your activities have to be med related, but they should all be about you and not about other people. Great point. That's a very good point. 
Malay says, I've been out of school for some years. I didn't establish relationships with my professors. While I'm considering going back to school, I have no letter of rec writers. What would you all recommend I do to get LORs? I love that you asked this question. I've seen it today in the chat from many different people in many different forms. And whew, I wish I had a time machine for you all. Um, so for anyone who's an undergrad, um, because this is a common issue that happens to a lot mm -hmm. of people. So we're going to answer the question. But before we do, if you are an undergrad, make friends with your professors now. Tell them you're going to be applying to med school in a few years. Ask them, hey, going to be applying to med school in a few years. And I would love if you would be willing to write me a recommendation. It's several years off. Can I just keep in touch with you a little bit? And then send them friendly two-line emails once a semester. Um, make Avoid this problem. But so for those of you who are in the problem, Courtney, what do you think they should do? Well, I would try to reestablish that connection, right? Reach out to them, email them, see, you know, one, if they would be willing to write you a letter if you, you know, establish that contact and that rapport again, and two, what they would need to be able to do that. So it's going to take some additional legwork on your part, uh, but it's not a completely unviable option at this point. The other option would be, you know, if you qualify as a non-traditional student, some schools will allow you to use different letters of recommendation, say from your supervisor at your places of employment to qualify for science if you've been out for a certain number of years. So you can also check that route. Great. What's next? Alexandria, research experience is difficult for me to get as a non-trad. Often I get rejected at positions I apply for given how competitive they are. What are the thoughts on applying without research? Whew, I love this question because my thoughts are it is no big deal. Yeah. It's totally Do it. fine. Do, Do it. it. <laughs> I was research thinking not required. Nope. Jason McKenzie says, does a good graduate GPA make up for a bad undergraduate GPA? Are we going to all just go? Uh. <laughs> uh, we talked about trends a little bit. I talked about them a lot. So someone else talk about trends. Talk about grad versus undergrad. Who wants to grab that? Sure. So, Jason, I mean, it, it, no. Will it make up for a bad undergraduate GPA? The short answer is no. Um, you still, it's good that you've shown that you can um, pursue a graduate degree and, and do really well in those courses. It'll enhance your application. But you still have to go back and look at those prereqs that, um, I'm as, well, let me take a step back because I was going to say go back and look at those prereqs, but we don't know if he's taking the prereqs, if Jason is taking the prereqs, or if this is an undergrad GPA and a completely different uh, degree program that where you haven't taken the, the prereqs. So, if you've taken prereqs and you performed poorly, you still have to consider going, maybe going back to school, retaking some of those prereqs. If you've never taken them and you've just performed poorly in your undergrad in a completely different major, that's still an opportunity to go back to school. Maybe think about doing a post-bac to establish a solid uh, undergraduate GPA trend. And, and I don't know, maybe Courtney, if you have more insight as well. Well, not all graduate programs are created the same and they can mm -hmm. score very differently. And so I would say I would agree that no, it's not going to completely make up for it, but 
you do want to perform well. It's going to be your most recent coursework. It is at a graduate level, so we do weigh it, um, and we want to see that it's strong. So I would say you definitely need to have uh, good performance in your graduate work, but it won't completely remove your undergraduate. Yep. All right. Got consensus all around there. Masu says, thoughts on getting online certificates from Ivy schools, uh, i.e. healthcare leadership, stats, biostats. Do medical schools take these into account? Um, well, I think, first of all, it's going to be very similar to some of the answers we've given, right? So online certificates are all often graduate level work, but then just like we said, graduate courses vary. I would personally be wary of name brand online certificates. Now I say that having one, but I also know darn well that my online certificate from my name brand Ivy League school was not as, uh, the admissions were not as rigorous. It was a completely different admissions path than their formal MBA program, right? I just wanted to learn more about data analytics and I was busy. So I took some online certificate courses and it was really cool. I learned a lot. But I know darn well, and I think everyone in education knows darn well that mostly what I contributed to applying was the tuition. So yeah. if you're doing it to learn, great. But those ones that are easy to get into, they know they're easy to get into. So don't, don't think the name is going to fool someone. Right. Yeah. Definitely. How would you approach motherhood on applications? Hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, as Man, the res yeah, go ahead. Start Sorry, it. Start was, resident mother. <laughs> as the resident, as the resident mother, uh, in 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 an advising role, uh, embrace it. It's part of who you are. Absolutely, if appropriately, right? If it fits into your story, if it's something that you want to, um, if it kind of inspired you on this path, or if it has something to do with your path to medicine. Absolutely. It is who you are. There's no reason to hide it. There's no way to get around it. They will be with your children will, will be with you in medical school. And if you're not in medical school, right. Um, so it's, a, it's a more stressful way to kind of have to go through this process, of course. Um, but, but a hundred percent it is, they are a part of you. So there's no reason why you shouldn't, um, why they shouldn't be a part of your application. Jody says, I am a non-trad with no advisor and I will not be able to do a committee letter. So how do I get around that? I have so much work experience and I have been offered many rec letters. Yeah, so Jody, we spoke about this a little bit before. You don't have to do a committee letter. You can do individual letters. So, um, you know, I'm not sure where you are in your process, but if you're starting to get to the point where you have a tentative school list, start looking at those schools to see what kinds of letters they require. Um, most of them will say, here's a list of what we want or committee letter, right? So it might be one school says two science professors and one non-science professor. Another school might say two science professors and one work supervisor. Um, they do typically want some academics, but, but committee letters are a plus, but they can be required because actually only, I mean, not only, but mostly only schools on the East Coast of, of the U.S. even do them. Like that's not, it's not very common from you know, roughly Ohio West. So most people are not applying with a committee letter. Malvina, are international shadowing and or volunteer activities accepted? Sure. 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. One thing about shadowing is, um, you know, clinical is kind of clinical anywhere you go, as long as you're adhering to like local laws, um, because patient care is patient care. But shadowing internationally might look very different because physicians have such an, like the way we do healthcare in America is very different than many other countries in the world. So I would still recommend trying to get some U.S. shadowing as well. But you can definitely count your international shadowing. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know if this is Yorixi or Yorihi. I'm sorry. I hope you can teach me how to say your name. Um, Are medical schools accepting online prerequisite courses now that more schools are going back to in-person teaching? Biochem or stats, for example. Courtney, you want to field this one? Sure. Uh, Again, it depends. Uh, Some schools will want to see the in-person. I would say, especially for prereq courses, you're going to want to opt to do in-person whenever possible, especially if it includes a lab. So I would always gravitate towards doing the in-person. Some schools may accept online prereqs, but it's not going to be the ideal choice, I would say. So even if it's accepted, it may not be the best thing Um, for you to learn the material and for the admissions committee uh, to feel very strongly about how the course went. Also, these are kind of your bread and butter for getting letters of recommendation. So if you have an online course and you're going to need a letter out of it, if it's one of your science prereqs, just be very thoughtful about that. The interactions are going to be different. Maybe the strength of the letter is going to be affected by that. So take it into consideration if you're considering online prereqs. Great. Thank you for that. All right. It's 412. We've got time for one more. Sure. Hmm. Let me okay. There we go. Madeline, when adding experiences to an application, what is the best way to group them? For example, should all shadowing be one experience, all clinical volunteering under one, et cetera, or separate it? So Ryan Gray is currently backstage, but if he were on stage here with us, he would say there are no rules in admissions. There are no rules. (laughs) Hey, there he is. Just stay, Ryan. I mean, you're coming back on air in like a minute. Um, so there are no rules. You can do whatever you want. I love this question, Madeline, because particularly for AMCAS, where there's only 15 spaces, you may need to do some grouping in order to to fit all your activities in. You know, some people have eight or 10 activities and they have room to spare. That's okay. Some people have 30 activities and they're trying to figure out how to strategically group them. And exactly what you said Often that is putting all of shadowing in one because there usually aren't stories to tell about shadowing. And then with everything else, I would say it's less about type and hours and more about what it meant to you because uh, most admissions people are less fixated on how many activities did they list and how substantial and meaningful is the essay. So if you did a lot of drib drab volunteering that wasn't meaningful to you, I mean, it was fun maybe, but you just didn't get a ton out of it then you might want to collapse that. Where if you had a volunteering experience that meant a ton to you and you have a lot to say about it, you may want that in its own activity so you can write a full essay about it. And I, I would pop in just for the DL route using a Comis. This is a bit where we differ in the application itself. 
you can enter a lot of experiences. And so I would always encourage uh, applicants, if you've done it, give yourself credit for it, right? You spent those hours. It took away time from studying, from your classwork, from doing other things. And so give yourself the best advantage there. Also, you don't know what a particular school is looking for. Sometimes they like seeing leadership in your extracurriculars or promotions through your jobs or international travel. And so if you've done any of those things, spend the time to actually make the entry for it get the information that you need. Sometimes it takes a bit more time to do, but if you're a well-rounded candidate and you have all of these different things from freshman year on, you definitely want to show that. It gives us a much better view of what you've done, how involved you've been, and kind of the, the breadth and depth of everything. So I would encourage you to make all of the entries that are accurate that you can. This is MedEd Media.